Take your Bibles and turn to Malachi chapter 4. We'll not be as long this afternoon as we were this morning. Malachi chapter 4. The approach I'd like to take in this service is to look at a few of those statements made by those who oppose a gospel millennium and let us all decide before the Lord that His Word is true and they're wrong. We don't seek to be divisive, but we do believe one thing, that it is our calling by the New Testament to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. And when something is only 150 years old, it should make you nervous, fearful, and angry. You know, the 1800s were the beginning of a lot of things. The Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, and the Seventh-day Adventists all got their beginning in the middle of the 19th century. A lot of error started in that century that's still around today. And we want to trust the Word of God. We want to believe every word of it. We want to humble ourselves before it. We'll use the time that we have to look at a few examples. The last two verses of your Old Testament. Very simple. Very misunderstood. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Father in heaven, we do adore thee. We humble ourselves before Thee in Thy Word, and we tremble there. We thank Thee that the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong unto us and to our children, that we may do all the words of this book. Father in heaven, we shall read Thy Word distinctly and give the sense and understand the reading. Help us to do so rightly. Father in heaven, if it were not for your grace in opening our eyes, ears, and hearts, we would understand no more than anyone else and probably less. We are by nature the children of wrath even as others. We are babes in the sight of this world, but we thank thee that thou hast perfected wisdom in babes. We thank thee, O Lord of heaven and earth, that Thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. And we are thankful to be the babes of our Father in heaven. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the last two verses of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Quickly, John Darby and C.I. Schofield and those that hold the dispensational premillennial position believe that these two verses are yet to be fulfilled in some coming time when Elijah will literally return to earth. But let's see what the Lord Jesus Christ has to say about that. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. This is one of my favorite 
places to go with someone that I'm just beginning to talk to about Bible prophecy. Because it's so simple, and the Lord is so plain about it, and our opponents are so wrong about it. It should be easy to see. Matthew chapter 11, verse 7. I'll read a little passage. I hope you can follow with me. Matthew eleven seven. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Amen. Amen. And thank you, Lord, for being so simple. If ye will receive it, will everyone here receive it this day that John the Baptist was Elijah that was to come? If you're wondering about the word Elias in verse 14, that is again when a Hebrew word goes into Greek and comes into English, it is altered in a little way. That is Elijah. This is the fulfillment of Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, contrary to many great and esteemed men who do not believe that John the Baptist fulfilled Elijah the prophet. And neither do the Jews believe that. See, here is another Jewish fable. The Jews believe that Elijah was going to come back literally. And so do those that practice and follow and promote Jewish fables. They're looking for Elijah literally to return. But Jesus said, if ye will receive it, I'm explaining a prophecy to you. This is Elijah that was for to come. He that hath ears to hear. Now, if we can hear that and you say that is so simple, you're one of his babes. You're one of his babes. Jesus had himself to say, and we just prayed this, Father in heaven, I thank thee that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, but you've revealed them to babes. And we're his babes. We have ears to hear and eyes to see that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the last two verses of the Old Testament. He had the ministry of preparation for Jesus Christ's arrival. And I hope that you did notice in verses 11 and 12 that the kingdom of heaven was already there, that John the Baptist was rather great in that kingdom, but he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I just need to comment on that before we leave it. How can John the Baptist be the greatest ever born of women, and yet he that is least in the kingdom of heaven be greater than John? John the Baptist, as far as his office, was the greatest ever born of women because his one job was 
to announce the Lord Jesus Christ as right. the Messiah. He had the most, he had the narrowest job description ever given. All he was to do was to announce Jesus Christ and to show him and baptize him to Israel and present him as the Messiah. But now how can the least in the kingdom of heaven be greater than John? Not in office. In knowledge. In knowledge. John didn't know anything. We've had Paul being our instructor for years. John didn't know anything except his cousin Jesus was to be baptized and God was going to anoint him with the Holy Ghost in the presence of all the people. Other than that, he didn't know anything. It's his only mission. It's in knowledge. You know, even later in his life when he's in prison, he had even that knowledge taken from him. He had to send to Jesus and say, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? It's knowledge. Not office, but knowledge. That was not my point, though. My point is in verses 14 and 15. If ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. We just read in Malachi chapter 4 that there was an Elijah, and he was to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And Jesus said, it was John the Baptist. And he said, if you will receive it, here's the answer. And he said, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. But that's not all we have. Let's go to chapter 17 in the same book. Matthew chapter 17. Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, and Moses and Elijah appear in a glorified state with Him. And so as they come down from that mount, here's the conversation that took place between Peter, James, and John and Jesus. We'll begin at verse 10. I hope you have the context sufficiently in your mind what just took place at the top of the mountain. They just saw Elijah. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? See, the Jewish fable was Elijah would literally, truly come. Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that He spake unto them of John the Baptist. And I'm preaching to you today for you to understand that Jesus was speaking of John the Baptist and the Elijah of Malachi 4, 5, and 6 is John the Baptist. We're still not done. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Did you remember over there in Malachi 4 that it said He would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers? Okay, let's look at Luke chapter 1. Now, Zacharias has gone into the temple to burn incense, and an angel has appeared to him and told him that his barren wife, Elizabeth, is about to have a son named John. And here's what the angel told Zacharias about this son. Verse 15, He shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's John the Baptist. The angel tells Zacharias, your son is going to fulfill the role 
given to that prophetic Elijah in Malachi chapter 4. John the Baptist is going to do it. He has a preparatory ministry to get people ready for the Messiah. And that was to preach the gospel of repentance for the remission of sins and the baptism of repentance in the Jordan River. But here we get we learn a little bit more about why the Holy Spirit said Elijah the prophet in Malachi chapter 4 because John was going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So he was called a prophetic Elijah the prophet. How else would you write it if you were Malachi? If you were Malachi and you wanted to tell your people of Israel 400 years before there was a John, that there was a John that was going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah, would you say John's going to come? They'd never heard of a John in Israel. The prophet spoke with similitudes. This is where we differ in how we approach the Bible. The Bible tells us that prophets do not use express language. They use similitudes. Hosea 12.10, Revelation 1.1, 1, 1, 1 Peter 1.11 all tell us that the prophets signify things by signs. They do not use express language. And so when they said Elijah the prophet, they were using that in a prophetic way of a man like Elijah. And Jesus told us exactly who it was. John the Baptist. Now look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We're still on this simple little subject. It's a good one though. It's a good one for you to remember. Just ask someone, when does Elijah the prophet come? In Malachi 4, 5, and 6. And let them them crawl out on a limb as far as they want to go. Help them out gently. And let them get out there on the limb and then take them to the words of Jesus who corrects a lot of errors about Elijah. He's already been here. John the Baptist. Now listen to John the Baptist answer a question in John 1. Verse 19. John chapter 1. And this is the record of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? Can I just stop there for a second? Do you know this guy named John the Baptist was kind of different? Where did he have his, to get his degree from? They didn't have schools out in the wilderness. You know, he hadn't been to seminary. He wasn't Dr. John, and he didn't have a three-piece suit. You know what he had. And his diet was pretty bad. Just think about this guy. But do you know what? We were talking about him at break time. Here he was. He began preaching at the Jordan River. He's been out in the wilderness. All of a sudden, he starts preaching. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. It's time. You and your cousin had to wait until you were 30 years old because no one's going to listen to a kid. They were 30 years old. and John the Baptist begins preaching. And guess what? All of Judea went out to hear him. He didn't have a megachurch with rock bands that brought the worldly. He was out there preaching the doctrine of repentance and all Israel came out to him and the scribes and the Pharisees could not believe it so they had to go out and check it out. Where in the world did you come from? We don't remember. What graduating class were you part of? We don't know anything about you. Who art thou? can understand that. Verse 20. And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. What a man. You know what he said about Jesus? I must decrease, but he must increase. Though he was the greatest born of women, 
I must decrease, he must increase. I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? That we may give an answer to them that sent us. What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. Let's go back to 21. They said, Art thou Elias? He said, I am not. What did they mean by their question? Because that is what he answered. They did not mean, are you the fulfillment of the prophetic Elijah of Malachi 4? They were asking him, are you Elijah the prophet? Because do you know what he looked like? Elijah the prophet. In their Bible story books, they had a picture of Elijah the prophet. He was a rough man, hairy all over, that wore a little bit of leather. And do you know what John looked like? They, they were asking him, are you Elijah? Because it was a common belief, as we already saw in Matthew 17, that the Jews, it was a Jewish fable, that Elijah was coming back. And so when they asked the question, they were not asking, are you the fulfillment of the prophetic Elijah? They were asking, are you Elijah the prophet? He said, no, I'm not. Well, then are you the prophet of the, the book of Deuteronomy? No, I'm not, because Jesus Christ was that prophet. I want you to understand John 1.21. When you run into that verse and John says, No, I am not Elias. He's saying, No, I am not Elijah, literally. Because that's what they asked and that's what he answered. And he didn't owe these people any truth. It was the people, it was the people of God that were given the truth. These are the wise and learned of Israel. Thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent. You understand? John wasn't going to give them the truth. Jesus gave us the truth. We know that John the Baptist is the fulfillment. Look at Matthew 16. I hope that I'm tying all these verses in together so that you'll understand John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. The Jews had a fable at that time that Elijah was going to come back. They were literalists. See, we are not literalists unless we are told to be literalists because we are told very carefully by the Lord that prophets speak in similitudes. You know, when we read about the heavens and the earth being shaken, our mind wants to think about some cataclysmic event where the earth is knocked off its axis and we, we lose sight of the sun and it's darkened. And what the Lord's trying to tell us is, I'm going to turn religious things upside down. It's figurative language and it's beautiful and it's powerful and it's, a, it's apocalyptic and it's, it's wonderful. But do you know what? It's hid except for those who want to study the Bible the Bible's way. You know how we study the Bible? We go to Hebrews chapter 12, we compare it to Haggai chapter 2, and we realize that shaking has already taken place because Paul said the kingdom's there, and it can't be moved because it's already on the other side of the shaking. You with me? You say that's so simple. Yeah, we're just simple people. And the Lord's wrote us a simple book, and we're going to stand by it, and we're going to fight for it and defend the truth. And it's a shame that the wise and prudent want to make it more complicated than it is. Thank you, Lord. If it weren't for the grace of God, we wouldn't know who Elijah the prophet was. Matthew chapter 16, verse 14. Jesus has asked his disciples in verse 13, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Disciples, what is everybody saying about me? Who do they say that I am? 
Verse 14, they answered, Some say that thou art John the Baptist. They thought Jesus was John the Baptist. Come back. Some Elias. Some think that you're Elijah. See? There we go again. They had the belief that Elijah was coming. Not a man like Elijah. Some say that you're Elijah. And others, Jeremiah. Look at all their fables. Or one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter confessed, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But my point in going to that passage was, the Jews believed that Elijah was going to come back literally. All of that was to say, there is a Jewish fable now, and there was a Jewish fable then, that Elijah the prophet that had to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord in Malachi 4, 5, and 6, we have chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, has not come yet. But Jesus said, if you will receive it, it's John the Baptist. Jesus said, if you have ears to hear, it's John the Baptist. Jesus said, he's already come, and they did to him whatever they wanted to. And do you know what that was? They cut off his head. Right? John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Someone will jump up and say, but what about the great and terrible day of the Lord that's mentioned there? Well, there's great and terrible days of the Lord throughout the Bible. Many of them in the Old Testament. Many. Not a few. Many. You know what that one is? The destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman armies. God sent John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, and the apostles to warn that nation before he would come and destroy them in the great and terrible day of the Lord. That is that great and terrible day of the Lord. There's more than one great and terrible day of the Lord. There's many of them. But that's that one because that's the one that happened after John the Baptist. And if you'll remember John the Baptist's ministry, when those Pharisees came out to hear him preach in Matthew chapter 3, he said, The axe is now laid to the root of this tree. There is going to be an unquenchable fire because he is going to baptize this nation with fire. He is going to burn up the chaff and he's going to gather his wheat into his garner. So shall it be upon this generation. That's what John said in Matthew 3. Let's go to another point. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. This is part of dispensational premillennialism. They make an error on Elijah the prophet because they miss John the Baptist. And the, the little Bible exercise that we just went through is worth far more than just knowing that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Elijah the prophet. Right. It is the methodology of how you understand the Bible. Amen. We take all the statements of Scripture together and put them in a way that causes them all to fit perfectly. Not looking at Malachi 4, having a notion that we want Elijah to come at some future day, and then using that verse, even though we have to bash the statements of Jesus Christ with it. We don't do it that way. Remember, I've told you the dispensational premillennial scheme. The Antichrist, in some future seven-year tribulation... is going to set up an abomination of desolation. They understand that to be this. The Antichrist is going to help the Jews build a temple in Israel. He's going to be nice to them for three and a half years. Then he's going to set up some idol in representation of himself and expect everyone to worship it. And so for the second half of this seven-year tribulation, things are going to be nasty. 
And the Antichrist and the Jews are going to be at odds with each other. I was raised that, in that system all my life until I was ordained. There isn't a verse in the New Testament about any such thing. They get their seven-year tribulation by taking that 70 weeks of Daniel and divorcing that 70th week from the 69, rip, and shove it out in the future. That's where it comes from. But I want you to look in Matthew chapter 24, and I want to, I want to show you how we look at the Bible differently than dispensational premillennialists do. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house, neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Let's stop there. The abomination of desolation. Now this appears to be a very practical warning, because Jesus is emphasizing very practical things, such as, women, I hope you're not nursing. Women, I hope you're not pregnant. I hope it's not winter. I hope it's not the Sabbath day so that you will not be hindered by how far you can move on the day, in, the, in a day's time. Very practical warnings. When you see this thing called an abomination of desolation set up in some holy place, then get out of town and get into the mountains. Very practical advice. Now, C.I. Schofield, John Darby, and those that follow him, Hal Lindsey crowd, Tim LaHaye crowd and all that left behind crowd, they take that and run it way out in the future yet. Let's go to Luke chapter 21 and see what Luke did in his commentary on Matthew. See, the Bible is a commentary on itself. And if we'll compare Scripture with Scripture, we can answer what these things mean. Luke 21.20 This is the very same sermon. Very same point, very same warning. If you were to go back and read the verses about it, you'd find out that we are right in the midst of the same lesson by our Lord. Verse 20, And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Matthew said, When ye shall see the abomination of desolation set up in the holy place. Luke says, when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, for obvious reasons, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. We compare the two passages. That event in Luke 21 and that event in Matthew 24 took place in 70 A.D. 
when the Roman armies came and circled that city, then departed, all the Christians were able to flee, then came back and leveled it with the ground. Just as Jesus said, this is a very practical warning, a very practical event, and the Christians were saved from it by following the instruction of Jesus Christ. What is the abomination of desolation? A foreign army in Israel, the holy place, what had been the holy land, to desolate the city of Jerusalem, just as Jesus had prophesied. What do they teach about the abomination of desolation? Uh, it, it depends on who you read. Salem Kurban, Hal Lindsey, Tim LaHaye, they're all different. If, you, if you've watched all the novels, then who knows what. But it's something like this. The abomination is some one-eyed cyclops, head of the United Nation, that is coming in the future. He'll probably have a 666 that throbs out of his forehead, and he'll be able to look at you and see if you've got the mark of the beast on your forehead in some 666, and they go on and on and on, and there's a reason. There's no tether. Do you know what a tether is? It keeps a horse at home. There's no tether. Because once you start speculating on all this stuff, there is no stopping you. Once you leave the Bible, that this wasn't fulfilled upon that generation, as Jesus said, and that it wasn't fulfilled with Roman armies encompassing the city, there's no limit. There is nothing in the Word of God that can stop you. You can just run wild with all your novels. We stop with the Bible. Jesus, Jesus taught us, and Luke wrote the commentary on Matthew, and I will trust Luke's commentary on Matthew over any commentary or all commentaries. Luke told us exactly what the abomination of desolation was. It's an army that would come and desolate that city, and it was an abomination to have a foreign army in God's holy territory, but he was there in judgment upon his rebellious people. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Many of you go to Christian schools in the area, including the school I went to. Many of us were raised dispensational premillennialists. We have that we have the order of events down pat in our minds. The next event on the calendar is Jesus Christ coming back to rapture his church out. Once Jesus Christ raptures the church out of the earth, then the Antichrist is going to immediately appear on the scene and there will be a seven-year period of tribulation where the Antichrist tries to rule the earth. Jesus will come a third time and defeat the Antichrist, the Battle of Armageddon. Then he'll he'll set up a 1,000-year kingdom in Jerusalem on an earthly throne that will last a 1,000 years. Then he'll come the fourth time because during that whole 1,000 years there's been a whole lot of wicked people just living on the earth, getting along with Christians for a 1,000 years of some sort. And they're going to rise up in rebellion at the end of that thousand years, and Jesus Christ will destroy them. And then finally we get to the new heavens and the new earth. But let's back up to two events. Jesus Christ has to come the second time, and then the Antichrist is revealed. That's left behind. That's all those series that you've read. The Hal Lindsey, Schofield, Darby. No one else ever believed that. Until 1850, no one ever had that order of events. No Christian on earth ever believed that. 
Because they believed this. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Now we beseech you, brethren. Chapter 1 was about the coming of Jesus Christ. You know, he, he describes it in verses 7 through 10. He says that Jesus Christ is coming from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. It goes on to say that he's going to judge all the wicked that have not obeyed the gospel and that his saints are going to admire him in that day in verse 10. So we've got the context rolling with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. There's the second coming and gathering us to be with him. That ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, a forged epistle. Don't let anything bother you. As that the day of Christ is at hand, because it's not. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day, what day? The day of Christ's second coming. The one that's under con- in context right here. The, the, the coming of verse 1. The coming of chapter 1. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Amen. Now that passage just gave me this order. There has to be a falling away, and then the man of sin is revealed, Then Jesus Christ comes, and Paul said, don't let anyone deceive you by any means. Even if you get a forged epistle over our name, don't believe it. Even if there is some spirit that affects you, so that you're having a charismatic rah-rah meeting, don't believe it. This is the apostolic order. A falling away, that means departing from the truth a great decline away from the truth of the gospel into all sorts of false religions, false ideas. The Bible tells us some of them, like the commandment to abstain from meats and the rule of celibacy of the Catholic Church, then the Antichrist, then Jesus. And here we are. We are holding a position that in their opinions is totally novel because we have falling away, the man of sin being revealed, and then Jesus coming. But that is what the church has always believed until the invention of the dispensational premillennialists. Everyone believed that because the text is so plain. Let no man deceive you by any means. And here we this is why we believe what we do. We believe that there was a falling away that began very quickly after the apostles began preaching. You can read about the falling away in the epistles. Then the man of sin was revealed. Then Jesus Christ is coming in that order. They have it reversed. They have Jesus Christ coming, then the Antichrist after that. And yet Paul said, Let no man deceive you by any means for that day. And what day? It's the day of us being gathered together with the Lord Jesus from verse 1. That day shall not come except there has to be a couple things happen first, Thessalonians. Don't get worried that the coming of Christ is just about to happen because it can't happen yet because there's a couple things we need to get out of the way first. And that's a falling away and the man of sin being revealed. That's what we believe. And we believe it in the testimony of God's Word. And when we go back and look at our ancestors in the faith, they believe the very same thing. You can't find a commentary before 1850 that believes it any other way. They all understood that because it's rather simple. 
and they all knew who that man of sin was because he had been persecuting them for 1,200 years. Right. One more point. John chapter 5. I want, you to, I want you to mull on this before we get together again next Sunday. And that is, how many resurrections are there? We believe in the gospel millennium, which means we are living and reigning with Jesus Christ right now in a spiritual kingdom, and He is coming soon, and by His voice and the trump of God, He is going to raise the dead in Christ and all the wicked in one day. We look forward to one great day of judgment that is coming. Jesus Christ will come in flaming fire, destroying His enemies, and He will receive us to Himself, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. We don't break it up into He gets the church now and gets the wicked later. And why do, why do we believe there's only one resurrection? Because there's only one resurrection taught in the Bible. John chapter 5, verse 28. Jesus said, Marvel not at this. He had just explained to them about being born again. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear His voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. The hour is coming, not the hours are coming. The hour is coming in which the dead shall hear the voice, not the voices, but the voice of the Son of God, and all the dead will be raised. They are going to come out of the cemeteries. The wicked dead to, con- to be consigned into the lake of fire. The righteous dead to be, to-, to be with the Lord forever. Their bodies and souls united in the presence of God. Come over now to Acts chapter 24. Let's, let's stay on this point. About We're answering the question, how many resurrections are there? Once you start sticking a seven-year period of time after Christ's second coming, and then a thousand-year period of time, you get involved in several resurrections. And we can only find one in the Bible. Acts chapter 24, verse 15. Let me start the sentence in verse 14. But this I confess unto thee, This is Paul on trial. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Before I leave that verse and continue the sentence, let's just look at what it said and chase a short little rabbit trail. Do you know what happened to Paul for believing the law and the prophets and settling his faith on the Bible alone? He was called a heretic by the religious leaders of his nation. Notice what he says. I, I confess unto thee that after the way which they call heresy, they call what I believe heresy, but that's the way I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. If you ever choose to believe the Bible and all the Bible, you will be considered a heretic by most religious people. It's always been that way. It always will be that way. Because evil seducers are going to wax worse and worse in these perilous times of the last days in which we live. But Paul didn't care. He admitted it. He said, I'm a heretic if we're going to go by their opinion. If we're going to go by the Bible, I believe everything that's written in the Law and the Prophets. Verse 15, And have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. There shall be a resurrection, 
that will include both parties, the just and the unjust. Not two resurrections, but one. And you know, when we go back and we look at the parables of Jesus, Jesus said, in the end of the world, the angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. There's going to be one resurrection, and the angels will separate the wicked from the righteous in that day when we are resurrected all together and we stand before God, and that is the great climactic event that the Bible is moving toward. We are in the last kingdom. We are in the rest of the Lord Jesus Christ. The man of sin has been revealed. Jesus Christ is coming at any time, and when He comes... It will be the climactic day of the universe toward which we've all moved. The final day of judgment. The righteous will be received into heaven and the wicked will be cast into hell. But of course we will have more on this subject in days to come. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. And most of all, may we live worthy of the King who has loved us and given us His Word.